The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. One of the things I love about stories is how much they slip and slide and break apart and come back together, soldered together in strange new shapes from, from teller to teller and generation to generation. There's also a loss in that. And there's some of the contradictions of appropriation. Mm. I think I poured all of those things into the bottle when I was working. Yeah. And tried to see what what kind of brew might be made from it. Because I just think that we tell each other stories in the end to kind of save ourselves as a culture and, and knit ourselves back together. And that's on the smallest level of family, Jack, on the largest level of nation. Mm. We constantly are testing one another with the stories we tell in in ways that are good and bad and inviting one another to join in, whether it's a moment of laughter or a moment of real, you know, impassioned meaning or um, faith. Mm. That was Alison Hagee author of several works of fiction, talking about her new novel, Scribe, the book that is taking the literary world by dystopian storm. Allison joins us today to talk about her childhood in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, her journey to become a writer, and her love for one of America's most often overlooked literary masterpieces, the oddly compelling short stories in Sherwood Anderson's Winesburg, Ohio. We'll have all that and more today on the History of Literature. Okay, everyone. Hello. How are you? I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I am fresh off a Burns supper. What a treat that was. I was a little bit skeptical at first. I have to say, I worried that would it. Uh, <laughs> I wor- <laughs> sorry, I worried that it would be. What's the right word? I'm a literature fan, as you know, but would it be too much? A whole night, a lot of poetry, a lot of literary revelry. The answer: No, it was not too much. It was too short. I was sorry that it was time to go. It was a little taste of Scotland, enough to wet the whistle but it left me thirsty for more. I will need to get back there soon. And my hosts for the Burns Supper were incredible, putting out the beef stew, putting out the leek soup, and putting out, of course, the haggis, and organizing the poetic festivities. What a great night. See? See? See how things can go when we're engaged with the world. It's good to read, it's good to podcast and listen to podcasts, but sometimes there's nothing like face-to-face encounters with friendly people, sensitive to the charms of another culture, to the charms of ale and whiskey, and the charms of the heartfelt poetry of the Bard of Democracy, Robert Burns. Speaking of Bards of Democracy, we have a Bard of a different stripe today, Sherwood Anderson, and our Virgil, to help us understand what he means, the incredible author, Alison Hagee, is here. We'll have that coming up after this.
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Sherwood Anderson was born in 1876 in a small town in Ohio. His father was a shop owner, successful for a while, and then he fell on hard times. His mother became a washerwoman to help out. Anderson himself was a hard worker, earning the nickname Jobby because of his eagerness to take on odd jobs for pay. It was an industriousness that carried into his adulthood. He was an advertising man and the manager of a paint factory before he finally threw in the towel, so to speak, suffering a kind of breakdown and saying, I need to start over. He left his family and his job and set out for Chicago and a literary career. He published his first novel at the age of 40. Three years later, he published his masterpiece, Winesburg, Ohio, a collection of loosely related short stories that paints a dark and mysterious picture of a small town in America, including all the disillusioned souls who are struggling to find meaning in a world where meaning is hard to come by. Apart from Winesburg, Ohio, and a few other short stories he wrote later in life, Anderson might be best known today as a kind of mentor to the next generation of writers. He himself was influenced by Gertrude Stein, but after he filtered her genius through his own, the end result went on to influence American writers like Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald, and Thomas Wolfe. He befriended authors too, Hemingway in Paris and Faulkner in New Orleans. Years later, Faulkner said from Anderson, quote, I learned that to be a writer... One has first got to be what he is, what he was born, that to be an American and a writer, one does not necessarily have to pay lip service to any conventional American image. You had only to remember what you were, end quote. He also quoted Anderson, saying to him, quote, America ain't cemented and plastered yet. They're still building it. That's why a man with ink in his veins not only still can, but sometimes has still got to keep on moving around in it keeping moving around and listening and looking and learning. All America asks is to look at it and listen to it and understand it if you can. Only the understanding ain't important either. The important thing is to believe in it, even if you don't understand it, and then try to tell it. Put it down. It won't ever be quite right, but there is always a next time. There's always more ink and paper and something else to try to understand and tell. And that one probably won't be exactly right either, but there is a next time to that one too, because tomorrow America is going to be something different, something more and new to watch and listen to and try to understand. And even if you can't understand, 
believe, to believe, to believe in the value of purity and to believe more, to believe not in just the value, but the necessity for fidelity and integrity. Lucky is that man whom the vocation of art elected and chose to be faithful to it, because the reward for art does not wait on the postman. End quote. A pattern developed between Anderson and these younger writers. He was helpful, then he had a falling out, and then he was still helpful, even after the personal relationship had ended. It seems that the younger generations needed to overthrow their spiritual father at some point in order to grow, as is so often the way. But even as they moved on, claiming for themselves new literary territory, let us not forget the accomplishment of Winesburg, Ohio. The stories in that collection are unusual and unpredictable. They're wild, and they're so full of agony and wrecked dreams and frustrations. They're so stripped down to the quivering heart of such fascinating human creatures that they still seem fresh and somewhat alarming, even today. They were shocking in their day for their sexual frankness. That cause for shock is somewhat reduced. In our own times, we're on the other side of Philip Roth and John Updike and all kinds of others, men and women alike, who made explicit what Anderson could only gesture toward and allude to. But Anderson is still shocking in a different sense. The people in their collections of anxieties and disappointments, which they confide to a young reporter named George Willard, have a startling power. That book turns 100 years old this year. Our guest today, Alison Hagee, talks about the work. We'll see how it's held up. And we'll see how she, an author of eight works of fiction herself, has found herself drawn to Sherwood Anderson over the years. And of course, we'll also hear a lot about her own work, which can startle as well. And we have a surprise bonus question. So stick around for a conversation about Sherwood Anderson with the wonderful Alison Hagee after this. Okay, joining me now is Allison Hagee, whose new book, Scribe, was chosen by the BBC as one of the 10 best books of 2018. Allison is the author of eight works of fiction, and she's here today to talk about her background, her writing, and the wild and wonderful book of short stories, the often overlooked American masterpiece, Winesburg, Ohio, by Sherwood Anderson. Allison Hagee, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Oh, hello, Jack. Thanks for having me. So, I can't wait to get to your book, Scribe, which I absolutely love, but let's start with you as a young reader and writer. Now, my understanding is you grew up in the mountains of Virginia. Is that right? I did. Uh, my father is from deep in southwest Virginia, coal country, and he got out of there and became a doctor and mm. set up a practice uh, south of Roanoke, so a little bit closer to the Piedmont in Franklin County, which was at that time about one-third untamed forest, one-third dairy farms, and one-third tobacco farms. A very agriculture, um, barely industrialized feeling place. Right. So were you in a town or? Uh, we were about seven miles out of town. Okay. Uh, an old farm, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you had, uh, was it a working farm? Did you have chores and that kind of thing? Yes, it was. Uh, my <laughs> folks raised some cattle. We had horses and dogs. We raised uh, corn and alfalfa hay. 
and had a huge garden. So when you use the word chores, the skin on the back of my neck still prickles a little bit. <laughs> we I, we picked a lot of picked and washed a lot of vegetables, right. um, and yes, we we had plenty to do. Mm. And it somewhere in there you became a reader. Was anyone in your life a writer or a storyteller? So the latter, yes, for mm -hmm. sure, in terms of storytellers. My dad is a really good uh, oral storyteller, but as a country doctor, and you have to think back, this is the 60s and 70s, he went on house calls, and, and his way of sort of making connections with his patients was sort of swapping stories, and he mm -hmm. would bring those home and share the ones that were appropriate for a younger audience with us. One of my grandfathers was also a minister, and I really, it was a long time before I made this connection, but you'd think it would be obvious, but he was a great speaker and a great reader and also a storyteller from the pulpit. Yeah. I really had thought about that way. Um, he was a scholar of the Bible as well, but he was, he was a, he could, he could really keep a crowd's attention. Yeah. And then one of my grandmothers was just a crazy avid reader. So neither of my parents were actually uh, big readers. We didn't have much fiction in the house, but I had two grandparents who had stacks of books in their homes. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is when you kind of realized you were enjoying fiction, if that was something that was always with you or if you discovered it in high school or when it happened for you. No, as far as I can remember from the second I started reading and my mom taught me to read fairly early, uh, I have always loved fiction mm. and imagined texts. Um, the only source for them really was the public library. My mom did keep a, a nice collection of children's books, but you know, that was maybe 20 books yeah. in those days because all public libraries had significant children's collections and, and I read everything. And they were, in those days, it was almost all fiction. You'd see the occasional, those sort of strange biographies um, <laughs> that they would do of, of popular sports figures or American right. presidents. But they were, they were fairly strange. Yes. Yeah, so I was, I, for reasons that remain a little bit mysterious to me, I have loved fiction from the get-go. It did not occur to me to write it until I was much older. Yeah. And you know what I used to love about the public library? is that they would, I, I think they did have a limit on books, but it was more books than I could carry. It was, the limit was 20 books or something. And I was so used to, you know, you'd go to the store and my dad was really good about always letting us buy one book when we went to the store, but you could never walk out of a store with all the books you wanted to read. But the library, you could just pile them up and bring them home and then just disappear into the pile. That you're so right, and when you talk about that, you you bring back memories. I think the limit for us was twelve. Mm. Our librarian would sometimes let me go over it, and I was pretty shameless about uh, swapping out with my brother, who's a little younger, saying, "Hey, if you've only got eight, may I add four more to your total?" And he was fine with that. <laughs> Oh, that's great. I have another great memory. I'm just, it's coming back to me now. Our, my my elementary school had uh, a library that was divided into two rooms. And one room was for kindergarten through third grade or something. And then the, the other room, I guess, was fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. 
And I was an early reader, and so I remember they would let me go over into the other library. And I would go over there, and I would leave this crowded, noisy side with all of these picture books and all of these kids in my class, and I would go over to the other side and get to just walk through this quiet room looking at this whole vast—I had the whole place to myself. Mm-hmm. And I could pick out, you know, oh, whatever heaven. I got to get. Yeah, and it was all Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom, and that's where all those books were. And I could uh, fill my arms full and and check them out. It was such a great libraries are really, I think, underrated for kids. Well, mine had a huge effect on me, and my, it was one of the things my mother was religious about with all of us. I mean, mm-hmm. we went if we we went once a week, mm-hmm. and it was a sheer pleasure to do it. There was no chore about that. Um, you know, the, because the public library was pretty good, the elementary school and high school library were much more limited. And this is the South I grew up in. I, I'm still amazed when I think back at the kinds of texts that we didn't have mm. for reasons of budget, but I think also reasons of culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so different now. That said, the adult librarians would also let me sneak over to the other side and pick out books they thought might be appropriate for me if I were 11 and 12. And one of the things I remember so fondly is they thought the bodice rippers were fine, right? <laughs> they didn't want me to read political novels. Yeah. But Ayn Rand and these naughty historical romances were fine. And my mother didn't really know any better. So yeah. <laughs> there was definitely there were definitely some uh, extra education going on in the public library for me. Oh, that's great. So at some point you must have decided that you wanted to try your hand at this and become a writer. Did you have any early efforts in that or did that just come later? My only early effort that I recall is when I was eight years old and I had a friend who also loved the Nancy Drew mysteries and mm-hmm. we both wrote a Nancy Drew mystery. And my fourth grade teacher, who is still alive, still remembers this. Mine, I think, was, (laughs) I have it somewhere, six and a half pages long, Jack. And it was so terrible. It was such a rip-off. But (laughs) I was very proud of it, and the teacher was very kind about it. And honestly, that fulfilled the urge. I loved to read. And when I got to high school, I had a great teacher who taught me how to write critically about literature. Yeah. And I was fascinated, but I swear it never, ever occurred to me that I might actually become someone who wrote books. I could imagine becoming a scholar who studied them or someone who taught them if I was very lucky. But I'd never seen a living writer until I went to college. So yeah. it's, it's, it's easy to think about it. Just it was not accessible. Being an artist was just not on the list of things that seemed realistic. Well, this this gets me to an interesting topic and we're jumping we're going to jump ahead a little bit, but I want to come back to you, but I want to talk about Sherwood Anderson because that was one of the reasons why I ended up going to an MFA program was because I was reading about, you know, my heroes were sort of the generation, the uh, Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald Mm. generation. And so I would look at these guys who were very young and in their 20s and getting started, and they would, they all 
well, I guess not Fitzgerald, but Hemingway and Faulkner both wound up with this guy, Sherwood Anderson. And mm. I think, uh, you know, their paths would cross through the newspapers. And I was looking around and I would ask around and say, you know, well, how do you how do you get to know writers? And they would say, well, you know, they they don't really take the time for people. You don't meet them at work because they're <laughs> teaching in MFA programs, you know, <laughs> like you can't go find them at your local at your local newspaper. You have to go seek them out at the MFA programs, which is where they are now. And so in some ways, Sherwood Anderson was what sort of steered me toward the MFA program just by a kind of indirect example. Oh, that's so fascinating. You know, and he, I think I probably heard about Winesburg, Ohio, many times before I actually read it. In my memory, I didn't read it in college. I read a lot of British literature and I, I took an American literature class or two, but I don't believe I read Weinsberg. But people began to recommend it to me when I was a very early stage emerging writer mm. at, a, at an MFA program at the University of Michigan. And I was writing uh, stories that seemed to be very rooted in place in, yeah. a, in a definable rural Virginia community. And they would say, oh, you must read Winesburg, Ohio. Right. It's such a yeah. great evocation of an American locale and all of its strangeness. And, and finally, I did. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what the connection with my own work is, because I felt like what I was doing was formally so different from Anderson. Mm -hmm. That was the first time I read the book. The second time I read the book, it really set off a sort of set of dominoes. So I, I kind of had to be more mature as a writer to appreciate its strangenesses and risks, I think. Mm. Um, although I certainly understood, I thought, well, this makes sense. If you want to do, you know, what we now call collections of linked stories, you could have a character like George Willard sort of be your right. guide through this collection. And that's a that's a really nice formal element that many writers have used. Mm -hmm. But honestly, the thing that continues to haunt me about the book and bring me back to the book is, is less about George and more about this incredible yearning yeah. that these just barely post-industrial Americans who are coming in off the farm, some of them still on the farms, into this small town are trying to express uh, about their sexuality, their class, and most often, I guess what Anderson would broadly call love, which is not always sexual, but love or meaning in life, just having some sort of inner restlessness or yearning satisfied by communication with other people. Yeah. And I read this after I read D.H. Lawrence and some other writers. So, it both echoes some things I'd seen, but it was also so strange. And Jack, honestly, I still think it's an incredibly strange and influential book. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it turns 100 this year. And yet, as you're describing it, you know, the way that these characters are, are struggling to communicate, struggling to express themselves, struggling to make sense of the world. And it they have these urges that they just seem completely unequipped to deal with. 
And I'll I'll add in there, they also have, you know, a sense of evil or redemption mm. and, and they're struggling with God. And it's really got these deep themes. And I felt like in some ways it was just as fresh. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and I know people who have that same struggle to communicate and to express what is really gnawing at them and instead the gnawing that never it comes out in strange ways or it it manifests itself and then you realize that this quiet person that you've known for 30 years was actually there was something burning inside them that just they didn't know how to deal with it well i love the your use of the word gnawing because i think that that is so incredibly true and looking at the book this time i thought Wow, there are echoes here of why some of us find ourselves so enraged these days. Yeah. It's not really necessarily all about politics. It's it's about am I trapped? Will I be trapped? And if so, how may I free myself? And if I don't, why can't I? Mm. And so on the surface, it's interesting to look at the book because if you read it, you know, right this second, we could we could slap a couple of unsavory labels on some of its characters. There's a lot of, I'll call it broadly, misogyny in the book. But it's worth peeling back the layers of that anger between the genders um, in the book, I think, and really looking at what is driving it. And you're right. The, the other thing that's right here is that is that powerful American Christianity that mm. seems pretty rough hewn in the book and and evangelical and is both satisfying to some characters but also controlling mm-hmm. and ferocious. It leads to ferocious acts yeah. of contrition. Yeah. It almost seems like I mean these these characters are they're it's, it's almost like they're in this in this desert. And they're desperate for a, a sip of water, and they they clutch at Christianity, and what they end up getting is a fire hose that then they, <laughs> takes them on a completely different ride, and you know can be overwhelming and not something that they can handle either. No, it's it, <laughs> it's true. And one of the other things that Anderson is so good about, I think, is it doesn't matter your station in life or your your preconceptions. You know this this lightning strike of yearning is going to come to many of you, no matter how well equipped you think you may be. Yeah. So if you're the Presbyterian minister, you're going to be just as maybe it's the Methodist minister. I've got to remember. Anyway, the the, the guy who's looking <laughs> through the broken window yeah. at the half-dressed woman <laughs> next door, or the farmer who has such, such an Old Testament view of the Lord. Um, and he's sort of waiting to be tested. But, you know, it doesn't matter how polished you are in Winesburg, Ohio. You're, you're going to find yourself unmoored uh, by human emotion at some point. And yeah. it is going to lead you in directions that you will be astonished by. It almost feels current. When I read it this last time, I'm always kind of expecting Sherwood Anderson to be outdated. He's so... You know, he's in that weird kind of bridge generation where he's really sort of before the moderns in a way. He was sort of almost pre-modern. He's kind of in between Henry James and and Hemingway somehow. But 
you know, and Gertrude Stein was an influence. But when I read it, everything, all the details, all the trappings just sort of fade away. And I'm not thinking, oh, this is too distracting because the characters here aren't, you know, watching television or listening to the radio or, you know, how could they understand what life is like today when they're not even that far along in the scale of technology. But instead, it's sort of like, I recognize these, recognize these people as the farmer and the minister and the, uh, you know, the girl looking for love and all of the types and all of the people who are still familiar to me today. Absolutely. I agree. And I think that the second time I read this book, I thought to myself, if I could only achieve that kind of effect, if I could only be someone who, as a writer, could empathize with a wide range of characters enough that I could try to begin to articulate those hidden lives, those inner lives, mm. I would be uh, I would be filled with a kind of satisfaction. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't sure how I would do it because I, I still believe this, Jack. I've been writing hard for 35. It'll be close to 40 years before I know it. And I, I just believe that individuals harbor such rich, uh, contradictions and complexities and hopes and passions. And we learn to veil those. Uh, in so many ways, or we, or we end up distorting them because of social pressures or our own internal wonkiness or whatever. But I, I, I think that a writer who can, who can show us the unplumbed depths of the butcher or the bartender or the school teacher or the young man at the livery stable is, going to remain pretty timeless mm. if if he does it in a rich enough way and these characters are just so what's the word i want to say heartrending i think their yeah. emotions feel so true yeah the setting may be old-fashioned but there's nothing emotionally old-fashioned about this book you're right it, it, it almost seems as if what sherwood anderson did in this project was he took a lifetime of characters and people he knew. And my understanding is a lot of these were people he kind of melded together with some of the artists he was meeting in Chicago and other lives of people he had known. But then he just distilled them down to the kernel of what was most interesting or, or most what was really at their core. And he gave us enough details uh, is superficial details that the the book is you know reads like a work of fiction and we recognize the people and he's always describing things and we can picture it in our mind and all of that but that it doesn't take long before he goes straight to the heart of their human dilemma and it's that that I find myself just pulled into over and over in these stories well I think that's true and I think we can all learn as writers from that that we can learn to be pretty good at all those details and trappings. Yeah. And sometimes I find myself working on projects and I'm sort of dithering. But these are pretty short stories and formally they're kind of odd and there's this crazy intrusive narrator who does some interesting things. But each piece has a core. You're exactly right. And he gets to it 
and lays it out in front of you and may not resolve that situation. We, he walks away from quite a number of these characters when they are still in tremendous confusion. Yeah. But we've at least seen a kind of enunciation of emotional truth with them, even if we don't get to hang out with the aftermath. Oh, and that is so interesting based on where he is in kind of the history of literature, because it's mm. it's moving away from these, you know, the the O. Henry ending with a, a neat reversal <laughs> or uh, even a Mark Twain type ending where it's sort of a, a folktale that then comes to a comes to a bang at the end. And it's moving toward this James Joycean epiphany. And Anderson is right there. And he, he does do this trick in his stories of just exposing the dilemma and then just leaving it there quivering uh, in a way that is, I would imagine it turned off a lot of readers in his time. His, oh, think, don't you think this book would still turn some people yeah, off? That probably. they would still sort of <laughs> flinch from these, yeah. these raw declarations and, the, and these pitiful outcry of these people. And you think this may be their high moment. They may, in fact, end up working at the millinery shop for decades to come and never get out of Winesburg, yeah. Ohio. Actually, there's a great you're, – you're spot on once again because Dubliners – yeah, is equally as strange. It's linguistically maybe more inventive in places, but in terms of how it redefined the way we think about a portrait of a community, uh, Weinsberg and Dubliners are side by side, at least in my little pantheon. Yeah. So I read an interview with you where you were quoted as saying, it probably says a lot about me that I didn't think of Scribe as dystopian until I began to share it with early readers. And I wanted to bring that up before we start talking about Scribe. I wanted to just bring up that quote because I kind of had the sense when I'm reading Winesburg, Ohio, that I know Anderson, the characters are often described as grotesques, and Anderson used that term himself. But I also got the sense that he was just doing his best to get the truth of these characters out, and he, he wasn't intending to mock them or exaggerate their world for any kind of comic effect, but these were just the stories that he felt like needed to be told about these people. And I'm wondering if if you see any connection there with the dystopia that you sort of inadvertently created in Scribe. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about that that way. <laughs> I, w- I would agree with you that, that the tone in Weinsberg is, respectful is not quite the right word, I'll come up with a better word, but Anderson's theory about grotesques is to me very different in some important ways from the, the way we think about the Southern grotesques of, right. say, Flannery O'Connor, where there's more narrative distance, and it's not always respectful. Mm-hmm. It's important, it's searing, it's insightful, but Anderson, uh, he thinks that he is elucidating human truths and, I think, sort of peeling them back or stripping them down and being very... Honest is not, again, quite the right word, but direct in how he's doing it, mm-hmm. even though there are moments of comedy. And I don't actually know enough about his theory of, of the grotesque. I know a little bit of he has the strange opening, the book of the grotesques or whatever to Weinsberg. But I guess he had some sort of elaborate artistic theory right. that I don't know much about. In, in my own work, Flannery O'Connor was a tremendous early 
influence mm. because I didn't read her until I went to college, left the South to read the great Southern writers. That's one of the wonderful ironies of my life. She's so funny in yeah. ways. Yeah. But she also gave me permission to write about a kind of tragedy, certainly of class and of situation and location. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I have not thought of that as being dystopian. The South I grew up in was, you know, the South of the 1960s. There wasn't a lot in the way of television. It was a South that still very much defined itself by the Civil War. I mean, people still talked about the war regularly, mm. you know, a hundred years later, which I know seems strange, but it was a truth. And, and the area I had grown up in was somehow an area that, and this is the white culture part, believed itself having been done wrong. Yeah. You add on to that the Scotch-Irish tradition of aggrievement because many, many, many people way back in my family and certainly all those families I grew up around had were booted off their land in Scotland mm. or England, Ireland, and brought a real defensiveness to the Appalachia I knew, and also a sort of blood feud kind of way of resolving issues. Yeah. So violence, and I, I did not experience it in my household, but violence was very much a part of the culture that I grew up in. So when I'm writing something about scribe, it worries me a bit, Jack, but I didn't really notice that it was <laughs> that violent. And I certainly didn't think of it as being dystopian. I thought all good stories uh, in the South are tragic and bad things happen to good people. And loss is a theme that we can't have enough of, that we just investigate over and over and over again. Yeah. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and I don't mean to, to take away from these themes, but I wanted to share a story with you. When I was at the MFA program, and there was uh, one of my cohort uh, had grown up in kind of a privileged, had kind of a privileged background. And on one of the stories that I distributed for the group to read, she had written in the margin, don't bait me to laugh at class stuff. And I had written what I thought was just a normal description of like my family's <laughs> dinner. <laughs> And it it was this (laughs) it was this this recognition of like oh you really have to have a kind of awareness that what your reality is the way it's coming across to other people might be totally different. But uh, why don't you tell us about Scribe and what the novel is about so we can talk about some of these themes? I want to make sure our listeners are able to follow what we're saying here. So this is a book that surprised me. I spent several novels just trying to think about how to be a good American realist. Mm. I love character. I love character more than anything. I've always struggled with plot. So I steadily worked my way into a couple of three novels that I thought could at least stand up on their own, but it took a lot of hard work. And they were typically projects that I planned over time and were distinctly not about worlds I was very familiar with, and they were books where I needed to do a fair amount of research. 
mm-hmm. which perhaps can be comforting sometimes. This was like a bolt of lightning and it came to me, the initial idea when I was back home in Virginia, a place I haven't lived for a long time, but I still visit regularly. And I was struck as I always am by the beauty of the landscape, but also even in the 21st century, this this sort of ruination that's occurring, at least in the agricultural world, Mm. these farms that were thriving 150, 150 years ago are really not there much anymore except for playgrounds or the development of housing Mm. communities of some kind or another. Yeah. But be it as as it may, I imagined, as I often do, what kind of lives were once lived in these homes. And it just suddenly struck me. I just suddenly saw this woman alone in this farmhouse writing these letters. Yeah. And it very quickly occurred to me that she was writing letters for other people, that people were coming to her, that this was her her job in the world. Yeah. And I got really interested in that that idea. I'm old enough to remember when my father would read documents for some of his patients because they were illiterate. Plenty of people I grew up with in that community were illiterate because they didn't need to be otherwise. Yeah. Um, where the ministers and the lawyers and, you know, the school teachers were the people who could read documents for folks, if not write responses for them. Yeah. And I just got really interested in this idea of this woman who people would come to write, ask, they'd ask her to write letters. And yeah. I fiddled with that just a little bit. And I thought, well, what if, what if she can do something with her correspondence that most people can't? What if, if she can somehow offer a kind of forgiveness or produce some sort of absolution that these folks are also seeking. What might that look like? Mm. And that's about all I had. And I sat down and sketched out a few paragraphs and the central elements of those paragraphs are still very much intact in this book. So two pages in, I had really all the elements I would need for the story. And I was thunderstruck by that. Yeah. I thought, my goodness, I've got this woman. I've, someone is coming to ask her to write a letter. So it's always good, as as our mutual friend Charles Baxter would say, to have someone ask someone else to do something for them in a story because that sense of obligation is so powerful. Yeah. Um, I had this migrant community that was had settled in these fields. They had come from somewhere, and they were stopping to worship something that had happened on this land. And I thought, who are these people and why are they coming through here? And what are they, what do they feel is so hallowed about this place? And I had this pack of unruly dogs and I had some sense that there was a strong man, uh, a figure who was sort of the political economic, uh, go-to guy in this barter culture rural area who was someone that my main character was having to deal with often. Mm. And that was plenty. So I don't really know entirely where it all came from, but those pieces came out. And when they began to came out, it also was really clear to me, the tone of this is like nothing I've written in a long time. And the rules of this world are not going to be the same rules 
of a boletto or a snow ashes. That is the sort of American realism that, that where we recognize as the sort of quote unquote real world mm-hmm. that this was a place uh, where stories would have a lot of power, but where there might really be ghosts yeah. or there might really be power in letters, power in stories, a kind of, what would I say? A kind of magic in community. Yeah. That we don't see in the real world, but we, we do keep alive metaphorically in our lives, I guess. A lot of times in a dystopia or a, a landscape like you're describing, the emphasis would be, how did these people get their food? How did they build for themselves shelter? How did they, what animals were they able to draw upon for their labor and that kind of thing? But the way you've set this up, where the protagonist is this scribe who has the ability to write and to alleviate people's problems, it's almost like uh, you're putting the Winesburg, Ohio type characters who you know, we don't, they're not scrounging around for food or for water. They're burning inside with something that they need to communicate that they can't. And you're putting this protagonist right in the middle of that kind of a dilemma for people. And she's the one who is going to address these problems and try to express for them something that you know, beyond just their literacy, but to be able to, you know, deal with something deep inside them. Oh, that's a wonderful connection. I I hadn't made it directly, although I would say that I believe that that that's what we do with our stories. And in Weinsberg, people just come to George Willard, who's all of 17, to tell their stories because they somehow believe he is this complete greenhorn journalist will understand mm-hmm. because he has the power of language and the ability to report on community. There's something and about I guess describes similar. Yeah. His, there's something about his personality that makes him artistic. They recognize in him a sort of sensitivity to, you know, they're, they're comfortable telling him kind of their deepest fears or their, their deepest truths just because they think he'll recognize it in them. And he's also as young as he is, he's he honors those. Yeah. They trouble him sometimes and he's not a completely honorable young fellow in the book, but he doesn't go tattling. Right. about these folks and the unseen facets of their lives, I think. Mm. Yeah. Now, do you think that any of this were you consciously aware of this? Do you do you look back on it and, and think that this may have been part of what fueled your uh, creative energies when you were working on this? The fact that you are a writer and you have written many books and, and set them in, in these places and probably drawn upon some people you've known and some stories that you've heard them tell and that there's a kind of responsibility that, that comes with that, that that you among the people you know are the one who is publishing short stories and putting details that people may recognize about themselves. And in some ways, you are a scribe. Uh, Do you think uh, that was part of what was going on when you were setting out to write this book? I do. I think I came at it a slightly different angle. Maybe 15 years ago, there were those of us writing who thought the internet is going to do away with us. Yeah. 
uh, or it's going to so change the the landscape that it's unclear what role uh, storytelling and language will will play. Mm-hmm. And I think that the situation hasn't evolved quite like we thought it might, and that narrative and story in all its forms, including podcasts, I suppose, remains very, very powerful and compelling. Yeah. And with it comes opportunity and responsibility, um, sometimes comedy and sometimes tragedy. And so I do think when I started this, part of it was my anxiety of how writers function in a culture, particularly if they're not entirely aligned with the spirit whatever the spiritual culture may be. Hmm. So early in the book, Hendrix and the protagonist are talking, and they both sort of cast aside preachers and religion, at least in the short term, as having led the world wrong. Because, you know, preachers have, have not helped the community avoid its poverty or its strife or its isolation. And she is reluctant to take on that kind of role, but finds herself, you're right, thrust into it in some ways. And so I think the book is somewhat about the anxiety of using language and culture and also being the artist who who makes the portraits of words and preserves the stories even while we distort them. Because I do think that one of the things I love about stories is how much they slip and slide and break apart and come back together, soldered together in strange new shapes from, from teller to teller and generation to generation. There's also a loss in that. And there's some of the contradictions of appropriation. Mm. I think I poured all of those things into the bottle when I was working and tried to see what, what kind of brew might be made from it. Because I just think that we tell each other stories in the end to kind of save ourselves as a culture and and knit ourselves back together. And that's on the smallest level of family, Jack, or on the largest level of nation. Mm. We constantly are testing one another with the stories we tell in, in ways that are good and bad and inviting one another to join in whether it's a moment of laughter or a moment of real, you know, impassioned meaning or um, faith. Mm. That is beautiful. And I would just uh, tell my listeners that if they want an example of someone who was doing exactly that in 1919, they should check out uh, Sherwood Anderson. And if they want an example of someone doing that in 2018, they should check out Alison Hagee. Wow. Thank you for that. <laughs> So I have one more surprise bonus question for you. (laughs) Are you ready? Fire away. Okay. A genie arrives and announces that unfortunately it is not your turn to be granted a wish. Instead, he's here because someone else has included you as part of their wish. Their wish is that Sherwood Anderson be granted the chance to see America in 2019 and write a few stories about what's happening today, and that author Allison Hagee will be his guide while he's here. For two weeks, Sherwood Anderson will be your guest, and you can drive or fly wherever in America you'd like. Where would you take him? Who would you want him to meet? And what would you expect him to write about? 
my goodness. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. He spent a fair amount of time in uh, the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia oh. later in his career. So I would want us to go back. One of his failed novels is uh, about the uh, great moonshining uh, catastrophe that occurred in the early 1930s in the county I grew up in. That's a right. side note. I would take him back to the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia to show him how it had not changed in yeah. some ways. Um, I would bring him to the American West yeah. because I think that that is a place that would fascinate him. Mm-hmm. And he would see communities he didn't recognize and had not written about or thought about, particularly the indigenous communities, but he would be fascinated by the way American mythology is layered and twisted and torn. And I think he would find the landscapes, as Willa Cather did, someone who was roughly a contemporary, I think, um, who also was born in the Valley of Virginia. So I think I'd bring him out to the American West and Southwest if I had time. But on our way between the two, we would go to Chicago. Mm. Place I don't know very well, but he did. And yeah. oh, I would be really interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be what the, do most, I think, yeah. <laughs> the most what dramatic do I, change, I think. Yeah, yes. What, so I, I think I would be interested in, in what he thought about the huge industrial, post-industrial uh, Chicago and what was different and what wasn't. Um, because he would have been aware of the earliest waves of the Great Migration, but mm-hmm. he might be surprised by some other elements. I think he'd also be interested in, in, wouldn't it be fascinating to go to the Art Institute of Chicago with someone like Sherwood Anderson and look at yeah. um, American art? I think he, I think he, because of, we might listen to some talk radio and then he would be, he'd be writing a little bit about American politics. And like Sinclair Lewis, he would say, Things haven't changed very much. <laughs> he would be fascinated, I think. Yeah, uh, the cycles. Yes. Oh, it would be wonderful. I think with his journalist's eye, he might be smarter about some things mm. than I would be too. And he would not take everything at first blush. Yeah. But yes, I'd want him to see the American West and, and think about that. That would be, that would be the real treat yeah. for me. I'm actually, now that I hadn't thought about this when I wrote up this uh, surprise bonus question, but now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not sure what we would be uh, better off having. I I guess we would just have to hope that we would get both, which is Sherwood Anderson's account of his two weeks, but also your account of Sherwood Anderson taking (laughs) these things in for two weeks, I think would be just as riveting and and compelling for us to read. I, I love being an observer. I would be very comfortable. Yeah. And wouldn't there just be something great about, um, you know, you go out sightseeing all day or something or taking him around and and showing him things and explaining things and listening to his questions and watching him observe, but then coming back and, you know, maybe you're at a restaurant or maybe I'm imagining like staying in a boarding house type of situation (laughs) where he just gets to talk to the people. You're right. And just hear their stories and soak it all in and and just knowing probably that he would probably be just as incisive about, 
getting to the heart of you know which person was was dealing with a, a lost romance and which one was dealing with a, a frustrated career and I would imagine he would be a great uh, conversationalist and even today he wouldn't miss a beat. I think you're right and I think that he would be interested in the internet but he would say we, we're going to have to go in the bars and yep. the cafes to find out what's really happening that this is this is just a big tool but it's not what's real about these people live people's lives and I would agree with him on that and then I would listen while he talked to other people I would eavesdrop like crazy uh, well, Allison Hagee, I could listen to you for another hour, but I think we should probably uh, leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today on The History of Literature. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the fantastic questions and insights. Okay, there we go. Wasn't that wonderful? You should all check out Scribe. This book is fantastic. I highly recommend it. From the great Grey Wolf Press, one of America's treasures up there in Minneapolis, doing great work and winning prizes all over the world, including for Scribe, which is a fantastic read. Very compelling. My thanks to Allison Hagee for joining us today, and my thanks to Sherwood Anderson for digging deep into his soul and showing us all how to go for something big. How to explore the dark recesses of the human heart and present them in a way that does justice to the mysteries of the human condition. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you're not suffering from mysteries of your human condition, or if you are, you're doing so in a good way. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 